reading that Brother Neville has asked us to read this evening is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and Brother David Emerson is going to be leading us in that reading. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboureth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it that man should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they they have all one breath so that a man hath no preeminence above the beast for all is vanity." All go to one place, and all are of the dust, and all turn to the dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, 
and the spirit of beasts that goeth downward to the earth. Wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? invite Brother Neville to come forward and speak to us on the subject of Ecclesiastes. Brother Neville. Brother Chairman and my dearly beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. We come this evening, brothers, sisters and young people, to the next phase in Solomon's great experiment. You'll remember, of course, that Solomon is on a quest, isn't he? He's looking for the greatest good, that elusive thing that a man must do in this life that he might achieve lasting satisfaction. You remember also a fortnight ago, Solomon began to answer that question from the point of view of personal experience. He tried everything, didn't he, in chapters 1 and 2. Wisdom, pleasure, indulgence. In fact, the first portion of chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that Whatsoever my eyes desired, he says, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. So here he was, experiencing everything he could possibly experience in this life. He built, he planted, didn't he? He bought, he sold, he married, he accumulated wives, presiding over the golden years of Israel's history. The, the greatest they would become prior to the kingdom of God, I suppose you'd say, as a nation. But in all that, he could find nothing of lasting value. And so he concluded in chapter 2 in verse 24. After a lifetime of materialism, he concludes that there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This, he says, I saw, that it was from the hand of God. That was the only fulfillment Solomon found in all those years. And it was temporary. But at least it was tangible. While he was busy, he tells us, he enjoyed himself. He enjoyed being creative. He enjoyed being productive. But of course, once the, once the work was accomplished, the novelty wore off, it didn't last. But at least, he says, there was a blessing in the activity itself. A certain God-given blessing in labor. That's man's portion. That was Solomon's portion from chapter 2. Well, this is where we're up to, brothers and sisters. Here was the experience of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the personal experience we've just described that Solomon participated in, which netted him the result we found in verse 24. And this is where we are this evening. This is the next experiment. And you'll notice this goes from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 6, verse 12. There are four chapters now involved, which we're going to consider all of this evening. In the second great experiment, which we've entitled here, The Quest Pursued by General Observation, Solomon stops building, he stops creating things, and he sits back and now he reflects on all the, the information that he's gathered across his life. And we're going to see a lot of people tonight, a lot of people in all different circumstances, because what Solomon does here is he gives us snapshots of behavior, of things which happen to people, all Masses of people pursuing the same goal, all looking for ultimate satisfaction in life, all doing the very things that Solomon has tried to do himself in a materialistic sense, but has failed. 
He doesn't need to go and copy all these people. He can watch them. He can watch what they do and what becomes of them and answer many of these questions through, just through general observation. You're going to find, of course, that by the time he gets to the end of chapter 6, not surprisingly, he still hasn't answered the question. He still hasn't found this elusive thing that he must do in this life, living life as an end in itself to give himself satisfaction. What he does do, of course, is closes a whole lot more doors, which is his object. He's got to try everything and eliminate everything that he might find out, really, what can give man ultimate satisfaction. And that's what he's going to do for four chapters here. Now, this particular quest breaks up like this. This is the four chapters. The quest pursued by general observation. There's copies of the overheads, of course, I've got here. You can have them after the class, so... Perhaps don't try and copy all this down. What I'm thinking to do is leave this up for the evening in between my other overheads so that at least you know we're up to. So you can see the sections as they begin to unfold because I'm not going to have a lot of time to spend on all of these verses, but you don't need to. You can describe the picture quite quickly and you'll see as we go through some of these chapters just how the structure unfolds and why Solomon says what he says when he says it. Chapter 3, of course, is the key chapter in this section. This is where Solomon lay, almost philosophically lays out the framework of creation and explains man's position in creation in relation to the beasts, in relation to time. The limitations that God puts upon him to frustrate him. Solomon begins to explain that. He explains the reasons that man gets frustrated in life. Chapter 4, 5, and six are all impositions of vanity. We've got vanity imposed by God in chapter three. The way God has made creation will cause man frustration. It's by design, it's expected, it must be like that as we'll see. But man can frustrate himself. Quite apart from anything that God might do in creation, by the various things that man can do in his conduct, he can rob himself of any enjoyment in life, himself or his fellows. Similarly, wealth. He deals almost two chapters just dealing with riches. And the reason he spends so much time on riches is because almost universally, it's almost an instinctive, I suppose, answer inwardly in mankind that if he wants enjoyment then he's got to stack up money he's got to accumulate things mankind almost instinctively looks to accumulate things in the first instance to give himself satisfaction and, and sometimes takes a lifetime to realize really that he doesn't get satisfaction by becoming rich in fact i suppose many people die still really not realizing that but continually chasing this desire and for and filling this appetite for more and more and more never realising that they're on a treadmill. And so he spends a lot of time dealing with this and meets a lot of very different people. In the midst of this, of course, at the very bottom here, we have the first of our direct exhortations. This is a, a little section of seven verses specifically spoken to the ecclesia, those who aren't of themselves under the sun, those who he, he addresses in the second person here. It's the thee, the thy of the book of Ecclesiastes. And he addresses a certain, certain issues on worship. Here we've got worship, prayers, and vows. This, just these few, seven verses 
in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Well, when we turn to chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we turn, I suppose, to some of the most intriguing words in Scripture and certainly some of the most fundamental words in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the problem of time. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3, Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 3, Solomon said, as he introduced the quest, What profit has a man of all his labour which he takes under the sun? And then he makes the comment in chapter 1 and verse 13, that he gave his heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all these things that are done under heaven, the sore travail that God's given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. So he begins the quest asking what the purpose of life is, really. What what profit does a man have of his labor? And why is God exercising, or as it means, humbling man, in chapter 1 and verse 13? Well, he addresses those issues now when we come to chapter 3. Because you'll see in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, a duplicate of what you just read in chapter 1 and verse 3. What profit has man... What profit has he that worketh in that wherein he laboureth? What's the point, he says here? And then in verse 10, I've seen the travail which God's given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. So Solomon, as an introduction to this second phase of the quest here, is now going to start to explain why life is what it is, why creation is what it is, why man finds himself in the position he does. By design, by the design of God. How, even though that might not be pleasant for man, that is what God intends. And so he says in verse 1, Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 1, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Now let's define some words. To everything there is a season. The season here is an appointed occasion, an appropriate moment. And a time, a set period, a duration for every purpose under heaven. Now, under heaven here is really a a synonym of under the sun, which we read about all the way through the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. Under heaven and under the sun appear to mean the same things. So what we've got being described in the very first verse here is that every event in life has a start point, and a duration. There's a time plan for everything, he says. And for the most part, of course, man can't control them. Man can't control when these times occur. He's just got to take life as it comes and make the best fist of things he can with all the limitations that life imposes. And now between verses 2 and 8, Solomon lists the 28 times that come upon man. Fourteen pairs of times. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted. And he he lists this great catalogue, you see, of different times, each with their start point, each with their duration, opposites, which come upon mankind in his life. The first one, of course, the time to be born, is is, is the greatest of all. The time to be born, the time to die. The two I suppose, pivotal times that mark out man's life in between which every other time takes place at the personal level. He concludes the chapter in verse 19 by speaking about the time that man dies. 
So these, these, are, these are the great times now that he discusses here in verse 2. The time to be born and the time to David, between which all other times occur. So we're in a life then, which began without our control at a time to be born, and ends without our control at a time to die. I suppose we could, we could suicide. Most creatures, most living creatures, men and animals, do not choose that if they're rational. So the time to be born and the time to die are not in our control at all. But they are the greatest times of our life, in a physical sense. So we're living not really knowing how much time we've got, because we don't know when the time to die is going to come. You come across to chapter 9, verse 2, verse 12, sorry. He explains something on that. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 12. We're living not knowing just how much time we've got. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 12 he says, For man also knoweth not his time, that is, his time to die, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in a snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. All of a sudden your number's up, and that's your time. No matter how many precautions you take, tomorrow could be your last day. And you don't know. If you're running a business, you would do everything you could to stop those sorts of things derailing your business. Yet in the greatest business of life, you could have 24 hours and you just don't know and there's nothing you can do about it. Snared. In an evil time. When it falls suddenly upon them, he says. And different times are going to wash over us, brothers and sisters. You look at chapter 7 and verse 13. All sorts of different times will wash over us between the beginning and end point of our time. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 13, he says, Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God hath set one over against the other, to the end that man shall find nothing after him. Life will be unstable. It will alternate between a time of joyfulness and a time of adversity. Good times will come, bad times will come, and you'll never know just what tomorrow might bring. You'll never ever quite know what will be after you, you see. And God, that, God does that deliberately. God, he says, has set one over against the other. This is deliberate by God to destabilize man. So that man just can't predict everything. Our job, of course is to work out what time it is. Is it a time to speak, or, or is it a time to keep silence? Work out what it is. Work out quickly what sort of time it is, and act appropriately. Because he says in chapter 8 and verse 5, Whoso keepeth the commandment, now we've broken into a context here, he's talking about the commandment of the king, in verse 4. Whoso keepeth the commandment of the king, shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment. Therefore the misery of man is great upon him. A wise man will know the proper time and the proper procedure. For as the NIV says here in verse 6, there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though the misery of man is great upon him. And so there is a time to plant and a time to uproot. 
time to speak, a time to keep silence, a time to build, a time to destroy, all of these different times. And it's our wisdom, brothers, sisters, young people, to identify those times as quickly as we can and act as appropriately as we know how when they come upon us. But, back to chapter 3, because so much is outside our control, Solomon asks the question in verse 9, what's the point? What profit has man that worketh in that wherein he laboureth? What's the purpose of it all in verse 10? I've seen the travail, he says, which God's given to the sons of men to be exercised or humbled in it. Time's a cruel master. Where is it all leading to? And here's the answer. Verse 11, the key verse in this chapter and a fundamental verse in the entire book. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful, appropriate in his time. Also he has set the world in man's heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. And there's the key, you see. It tells us here that God has set the world in man's heart. It's the Hebrew word olah. Translated in verse 14 by the word forever. It means eternity. God has set eternity in the heart of man. Now this is a fundamental issue. This is a fundamental difference between mankind and beasts. Beasts do not have eternity in their heart. They cannot appreciate eternal things. They don't, they don't grasp or desire after eternal things. Man does by virtue of his creation. A fundamental difference. And so of course man looks for fulfilment. He looks for satisfaction. He grapples with eternal issues. He dreams about what the future might... A cow doesn't do that. A dog doesn't do that. His man dreams about what the future might bring and what, what, what he can do tomorrow and, and what God he's going to worship. You know, even uncivilized groups of people look to try and worship, instinctively try and worship something because of this design here, because of the way they're created. They look for eternal issues, which animals obviously just do not do. Verse 21 tells us, who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes down to the earth. Man's aspirations ascend, and animals' aspirations descend. We are just different by design, by nature. Same body, different mind. But that means man's frustrated. Because he's not, learn, uh, not living in, in, in eternal creation. And things have limitations far, far more constraining than his imagination. And that frustrates him. Well, why is life like that? Solomon says in verse 10, why are we going through this travail? What is the point of this? Oh yes, the point is that we're created like that. Why are we created like that? And here's the answer. I'll read it to you. Acts 17 Verses 26 and 27. Take a note of it because it's a very good verse, or pair of verses. Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. God has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Why? That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might reach out to him and find him. We've got eternity in our hearts so that we will seek God. He's an eternal being. He relies upon eternal principles. We, we have to be able to appreciate those things. That's why we are created like this. The same in verse 14. 
I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be for eternity, forever. Nothing can be put to it or taken away. God doeth it that men should fear before him. So we're created like this, you see, to be able to appreciate spiritual things. If it wasn't for this feeling, none of us would ever seek God. There would be no religion. We would be just like the brute beasts. We would be brute beasts, wouldn't we? But there's a balance in creation, you see. If everything always went man's way in life, he'd be so free from trial that he'd never ever pursue religion. Not that he couldn't, he just would never be moved to because he'd have no need. He could solve all his problems himself. By the same token, if nothing ever went well for man and he was continually frustrated, he'd become depressed, he'd become bitter and he'd never pursue religion because what would be the point? And therefore God gives man influence, but he doesn't give him control, doesn't he? We've got influence, brothers and sisters, but we don't have control and we've got limits but we've got some variation within those limits. The taste, if you like, but not the fulfilment. And that's how life is. That man might seek him, as access. That's the purpose of our creation, and that's the purpose of our development here in these verses. That's why the world is what it is. And therefore Solomon concludes in verse 12. Well, he says, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labour because it is the gift of God. There is nothing better for a man, he says, than to eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labour. And that's the point, isn't it? This life will not give you the eternal reward you're looking for. It's not designed to. It's not designed to. It's only designed, God only promises temporal rewards in this life of itself. So come to grips with it. Realise it. Come to grips with that. Enjoy the temporal blessings of God as they come your way and wait for the eternal to come later in another life. Verses 16 and 17, he goes on and talks about the ultimate time, the time of judgment. Even though man doesn't have total control, he is accountable for what he does. He can influence things. Particularly, he can influence the lives of other men. And God will judge him for that. Acts 17 and verse 31 tells us that he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And for the saints in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, he says that God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. The judgment will affect the world, you see. It will affect the ecclesia as well. And in verse 18, to the end of the chapter, we have the final section of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The final time, if you like, as I'll call it here, the time of death. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 18, he says, I said in mine heart, concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence over a beast, for all is vanity, he says. And this is important. This is very important. Here's the real vanity of man's natural life. 
when he dies, he, di- he dies just like the beast dies. Now, you know, this is a development in Solomon's reasoning from what he had in chapter 2. He talked about death, of course, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And when he talked about a man dying, he says, well, a wise man dies as a fool dies. He comes to chapter 3 and he says, a wise man dies as a dog dies, as a cow dies. It really doesn't matter. He dies. He's just like the animal. Wise and fools die together in chapter 2. And perhaps you could, if you, were a, if you were a wise man, you could say, well, at least I'm dying with other men. Not the case in chapter 3. You're dying with all the rest of the natural creation. Our lives, naturally speaking, are finite, as finite as that cow in the field. And if we don't use the eternal principles we have locked in our hearts, then we're no different and no better than the cow in the field. But you want to know the real perversity of man, brothers and sisters, young people? He doesn't agree with that. He doesn't think he dies at all, actually, because he's got a different heart to cows and dogs. He doesn't think he dies at all. In fact, he uses verse 21 here to prove it. And in Christendom, at least, this would be a verse which is used to prove the very opposite of what it's trying to prove here. Man's got eternity in his heart, they say. Well, he must have it in his body as well. Verse 21, who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? It's a doctrinal verse. What I've done here is I've put down my answer to it. Try to put it down in a logical manner so that there's really no, there's really no answer uh, that the, the clergy could answer to this answer. See if you agree. If the spirit of man, the word spirit here is the word ruach, if the spirit of man in chapter 3 and verse 21 is an immortal soul, which is what's claimed, then animals also have immortal souls because men and beasts all have one breath. You'll notice in chapter 3 and verse 19 the word breath there is spoken of being possessed by man and beast. It's the identical word spirit to what we read in verse 21. It's the word ruach. Well, therefore, if in verse 21 a man has an immortal soul, well, then so does a cow in verse 19, because we've all got the same ruach, spirit. Secondly, if in verse 21 where it says that the spirit of man goeth up with, if that means uh, that the soul goes to heaven, well, then animals also ascend to heaven, because God receives the spirit of man, says Job, and the beast, says the psalmist, alike. He receives the spirit of every living thing. Speaking, of course, of the life force of every living thing. Uh, But if verse 21 proves we go to heaven, we'll be there with the animals, you see, which is far more than the clergy would ever want to prove. The third point. The meaning of Ruach depends on the context. You'll see that even from what the translators have done in verses 19 and 21 uh, by translating the word Ruach by two different English words. And their translation is not bad. 19, it does mean breath, of course. Psalm 51 is perhaps the most useful to, to demonstrate the different way the word ruach can be translated. Psalm 51, verse 10, David says, it speaks about having a right spirit. The word spirit here is ruach, all the way through in these three consecutive verses. And in verse 10, it means his mind. He's speaking about his, his, his disposition. 
Verse 11, he talks about God not removing the Holy Spirit from him, speaking of the gifts or inspiration which David did have. In verse 12, he talks about the free spirit that he possesses, or the life force, the spirit of life, as it occurs in Genesis. And the fourth definition, and really only our four, I think, of Ruach, the fourth definition is what we read elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, wind, air, breath. Ruach can, can mean breath. And the point you see is that the context determines which of these meanings this simple Hebrew word takes. So you really can't prove anything just from one of these verses. The context has to determine it. Well, what's the context? Well, you'll notice in the margin, if your Bible's like mine, of verse 21, Solomon says, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward? And goeth upward has got a marginal note saying ascending. And the point is that we should retranslate it. Who knoweth the spirit of man that exalts itself, that ascends? It's talking about, you see, the disposition of man. Speaking of man's mind or aspiration, reflecting man's difference to the animals. Sorry, that should be Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11. Here. Does God set the world in our heart or eternity in our heart? He has not done that for the animals. There is a major difference between our aspirations, therefore, and the aspirations of a cow. And finally, he asks the question, who does know the spirit of man? Who does know the disposition of man? That question is directly answered in John chapter 2, verse 25, where Jesus Christ said, John says that Christ knew what was in man. And I feel like that's pretty much answered the verse. Brothers and sisters and young people, that's what it's saying. There's, there's no mystery about it whatsoever. A doctrinal point, but obviously a verse which does come under some scrutiny you ever have to deal with this subject. So he concludes in verse 22 with his summary again. Wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Concluding, of course, exactly the same way in chapter 3 as he did in chapter 2. But with one difference. He's added a dimension at the end of Verse 22 in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This dimension where he says, For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Who can show man what will happen after him? In chapter 2, you see, he tries everything. And whilst he enjoyed it, once the novelty wore off, he wasn't satisfied anymore. So he says in, in chapter 2 and verse 24, that the best thing a man can do is enjoy his labor, because whilst he's active, he'll have some temporal satisfaction, temporary satisfaction. In chapter 3, he says, he compares the eternity we have in our hearts to the limitations of life. And he says that this life is not designed to provide eternal satisfaction. We know that from verse 10. We are humbled by it. We are in travail because of the conflict between our hearts and the limitations of the creation. Life's not designed to provide eternal satisfaction, so don't try and get eternal satisfaction from this life. Understand that the blessings are temporal and enjoy them for what they are. That's where he concludes. But, you know, no sooner has he reached this conclusion than he's got to qualify himself. And we're into chapter 4. 
suppose the circumstances of a man's life prevent him from enjoying the fruits of his labour. Perhaps he lives under an oppressive ruler who robs him of all enjoyment of life, all satisfaction of his work. He has no enjoyment whatsoever. What then? What if a man just can't enjoy the works of his hands for whatever reason? And this is the story of chapter 4. There are many things in life which can rob us of the enjoyment that God provides. And in this example, Solomon gives, in this chapter, Solomon gives six examples of the enjoyment of life being robbed from man. He can be oppressed. Sorry. He can be oppressed. He can suffer envy from his neighbour. He can be idle. He can be greedy. He can have solitude or willfulness. All of these things, as we'll see, rob him of the enjoyment of life, rob him of the, of the simple and basic gift of God. So he begins in verse, chapter, one, chapter 4 and verse 1. I returned and I considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. All the oppressions under the sun, he says. I stopped and I thought about everything I knew. What I've seen in other countries, what ambassadors have told me, what I've, what I've seen myself in my own country. And he surveys all the injustices of life that he's been privy to. From, I suppose, simply the unreasonable landowner all the way through to the most ruthless tyrant. And he considers it. He thinks about what it means, what, what the implications of that are. And all of a sudden, this picture springs into his mind. The tears of the oppressed. The tears of the oppressed, he says. And you can see Solomon getting worked up, brothers and sisters, as he writes it. There was no comforter. Anguish, injustice, helplessness, no comforter. He mentions it twice here. They had no comforter. They had no comforter. And if that's all there is for them, he says in verse 2, well then they're better off dead. In fact, verse 3, better not to have been at all, born at all and at least shortcut the process. If that's all there is, end it now. That's it. That's the answer to oppression. There's nothing more to say, says Solomon, except for this. Psalm 72. What do you think this meant to him? This was a psalm written by his dad, wasn't it? A psalm for Solomon. We know that because the last verse says that the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This was a psalm that David wrote for Solomon. And he must have been thinking about a psalm like this when he spoke words like that in Ecclesiastes 4. Give the king thy judgments, O God, thy righteousness unto the king's son. Look, he'll judge the poor of the people, he'll He'll save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. He'll deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him that hath no helper, and redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. He could not tolerate oppression, injustice. This is Solomon's psalm. This is the psalm that David wrote from. He could not stomach oppression. And the tears of them that are oppressed... They had, no com they had no comforter, he says. It'll be fixed. By his own psalm, that'll be fixed. 
And the second issue, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. Envy. Envy. Again, he says, I consider all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbour. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. What's he saying? Every right work, he says. It ought to be every skillful work. This is a common problem. A man performs a work. He does it very diligently. He does it very skillfully. He achieves something that perhaps no other man can do, or few other men can do. And he enjoys it. He enjoys it while he does it. He takes pleasure in it once it's finished. And he enjoys his portion from God till someone sees him and criticizes him, envies him, despises him, ridicules the work, and robs him of any pleasure he had. Now he despises the work of his hands, this great skillful work of his hands. Vanity imposed by man. The third example, verse 5. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Here's the opposite position. This man does no work at all. He has no enjoyment in labour because he performs no labour. The hands that are spoken about here, of course, are power, activity. This fool does nothing at all. He eats his own flesh. He brings himself to ruin. And here's a couple of quotes. On the idleness of fools. The pursuit of idleness, which is the lot of fools. Proverbs 6, verses 9 to 11. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, he says, a little folding of the hands to sleep. And that's the point, you see, that he's making here. The fool foldeth his hands together. He reduces himself to inactivity. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. All of a sudden, you're poor. All of a sudden, you're desperately in need. The slothful man, Proverbs 26. He says, Ah, oh, there's a lion in the way. Lions in the streets. As the door turneth upon its hinges, so does the slothful man upon his bed. It's an effort to get out of it's an effort to roll over in bed, much less get out of bed. The slothful hideth his hand in his bosom. It grieveth him to bring it again to his mouth. It's too hard. It's too hard. He'll eat his own flesh before he cooks a meal. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. There's always a reason not to do anything today. And of course, in Proverbs 20, he won't plough by the reason of the cold, therefore he shall beg in harvest and have nothing. He will be reduced to eating his own flesh. He will waste away because he's too lazy. He has no enjoyment, as we said, because he does no labour. And here's a pitiful situation. Here's number four. Greed. Verse seven. I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, that is to say one man alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he has neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labour. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither says he, for whom do I labour? and bereave my soul of good, this is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. No friends. 
No relatives. He's a miser. He's a recluse, this man. All he wants is money. Everything in life whirls around money. He can never get enough. He's never satisfied, the verse says. The more he has, the more he wants. Look at the determination. Neither child, nor brother, neither is his eyes satisfied, neither does he ask, why, why am I doing this? Absolutely focused on one pursuit and one pursuit only and doesn't enjoy a bit of it. Totally driven just to accumulate dollars and cents and does not enjoy it one bit. He's a miser. And all misers are miserable, aren't they? By definition, he's a miserable miser. No enjoyment. Life holds no enjoyment whatsoever for him. He has no gift of God. Can't enjoy a thing. And between those two extremes, between the extremes of verses 7 and 8 and verse 4, uh, verse 5, we have verse 6. We have this bridge in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, look, don't be a fool and be idle. Don't be a miser and deprive yourself of any enjoyment in life just because you work so hard. Better, he says, is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. You know, there's a, there's a, a marvellous summary of that just back of page 2 in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. You look at this, Proverbs 30. This is against Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 6. Proverbs 30, verses, verse, verse 7. Two things, he says. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. And give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is Yahweh? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Not too little, not too much. Between a fool, as it were, in his poverty, and a miser in his wealth, food convenient for me. And you'll notice the margin here, food convenient for me. My allowance. Just, just give me my allowance, he says. Let God decide, I'll be content with that. Of course, that is the right answer, isn't it? Not too little, not too much. Let God decide. The fifth example begins in verse 9 of chapter 4 and goes all the way through to verse 12. It's the example of solitude, which Solomon deals with by listing all the benefits of fellowship and friendship. Verse, uh, well, verse 9, he says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And he goes on in verse 10 and he explains that, that, that companionship brings help in labor. Verse 11, he says, Companionship brings solace or comfort in rest. Verse 12, he says that it brings safety when you're in danger. And so the two in verse 9 are a contrast with the one alone in verse 8, you see. There is one in verse 8. Two, he says in verse 9, are better than one. Uh, but better than all, in fact, is three in verse 12. The threefold cord, which is not quickly broken. His point here, of course, is that the sum of the group exceeds the sum of the individual parts. The Apostle Paul, a classic example. You think of it, he recommended the single lifestyle, didn't he? So that you could devote more of your time to the truth. You don't have to look after a wife or a husband. You could devote more of your time to the truth if you were single. But wherever he went, he took someone. 
Wherever he went, he took someone with him, be it Silas or Timothy or Barnabas. He was always accompanied. And whenever you read what he writes, you go and read the, the greetings of the letters, the epistles in the New Testament from Paul and Sosthenes, our brother, from Paul and Timothy. Often, most often writes from himself and someone else. Go and check. But the crucial factor in all this, the crucial factor in all this is that unknown to the man of verse 8, unknown to the miser of verse 8, is Proverbs 18 and verse 24. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. There aren't many ways to have companions, and if you're not a friendly person, you won't have them, and you'll deprive yourself of one of the gifts of God. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. Well, the last example in chapter 4 is from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, the example of the, fall, the old and foolish king. We read that last fortnight. The example of willfulness. The king who is deliberately foolish, who, who just won't do what he knows he ought to do. And the reward of that, of course, is great misfortune, as you read and as we discussed in our last class. We're not going to spend any time on it tonight. It's... We know what that's talking about now, but of course it seems as though at the end of his life, Solomon did realise that he had been willful and he could see the implications of the misfortunate conduct that he'd taken. Well, chapter 5. Here is our direct excitation. And Solomon breaks the record now and spends seven verses talking to the brethren. Seven verses speaking to the ecclesia. This is the first of the direct exhortations in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's conspicuous, of course, by its use of the second person. What I mean by that is you read in verse 1 of chapter 5, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. You see, verse 2, Be not rash with thy mouth, or let thy heart be hasty. And through here you have thee and thy there mentioned, but, but not elsewhere in Ecclesiastes. Elsewhere in Ecclesiastes you've got under the sun but not here. Because this is not under the sun. This is to the ecclesia. So, for example, you read, chapter, well, as we've seen, chapter 4, verse 3, the last words, under the sun. Verse 7, under the sun. Verse 15, chapter 4, under the sun. And the same again in chapter 5, verse 13, and verse 18, and, and elsewhere in this section. Under the sun's appearing either side of this, this little exhortation to the brethren. And it's broken into three sections that we've got here. A warning against unworthy worship. A warning against unworthy prayer. And a warning against unworthy vows. We've just called it on the overhead here, a direct exhortation. I suppose to be consistent with what I've got up here for my titles, I could have called it Human Vanity Imposed by the Saints. We can, we can remove pleasure from our lives by conducting ourselves in the ecclesia of God, before God, in an unworthy manner. And what Solomon is saying is this, you see. Everything in life, if done for its own sake, is vanity. Everything in this life, if simply lived for its own sake, is vanity. Because there is nothing permanent in this life. Nothing can satisfy us except religion. Even though we, we might serve God and the ecclesia of God in this life, it is not such a temporal thing as everything else outside. For example, think, about, think of this. 
It's one thing to be an old and foolish king in verse 13 of chapter 4. One thing to be willfully foolish and be a fool. It's another thing in chapter 5 verse 1 to willfully offer an unworthy sacrifice and be a fool. It's one thing to be rich in business in chapter 4, verse 8, and devote yourself completely to the excess of business, being so preoccupied with it that you can't think straight about anything else. It's another thing in chapter 5, and verse 3, to have your prayer affected by your preoccupation. In Ecclesiastes 5, and verse 3, he says, that a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. His point is this. If you're very busy, if you're very stressed, if you've got a lot, of, a lot on, you'll dream and you'll talk and you dream. It's the mind's way of unwinding, of dealing with all the complexities of life and trying to chart a course through the problems that you might be facing. But a fool will pray like that. He will pray as incoherently as a man who is having a nightmare in speaking. And the way fools do that, the reason fools do that, is because they're preoccupied. They don't have their heads in this book. They're doing everything but. Their prayers ramble. They're long. They really are meaningless. God says, there is a folly. And there is a folly. You see? Similarly, one thing to be idle in chapter 4 and verse 5, and to be a fool, it's another thing in chapter 5 and verse 4, to be idle and not pay your vows. You see? When you come to these seven verses, seven to eight verses it really is, we're not just talking about the temporal, temporary things of life. We're talking about living before God and not living under the sun. We're living in a creation beset by vanity, where everything is only of temporal value except this issue, except worship. These are eternal issues. And therefore there is a time to sacrifice and there's a time to refrain there's a time to pray, there's a time to keep silence. There's a time to vow, there's a time to pay your vows. You see? And after all the, the, the context or the pretext of chapter 4, he stops and he makes a point, not all of life is as vain as all the rest of life. Chapter 5, verse 8. Now these are difficult. Verses 8 and 9, we've called it here, Oppression and Wealth. From chapter 5, verse 8, all the way through to the end of chapter 6 now, he's going to talk about money. Wealth. The, the great burden of mankind, the great oppressor of mankind, because he thinks it's the panacea of all, of all problems, really. He thinks it's the oracle, wealth. That'll solve everything. It just doesn't. It won't. But it feels like it might. Verse 8, he says, If thou seest the oppression of the poor, and the violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, he says. Don't be surprised, because he that's higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Now, the translation of both of these verses is disputed, and, and most modern translations differ slightly on what these verses should mean. I'm going to read you the New King James Version. Because I think it's right, it conveys, I think, the sense of what this is speaking about, because it is an issue of poor people being oppressed and wealth coming into the picture in the immediately successive verses. New King James. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, 
Do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official, and high officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. Or as the Living Bible says of all things, even the king milks the land for his own profit. Don't be surprised if lesser officials oppress the poor. Because higher officials are oppressing them. And it's happening all the way up to the top for money. The major source of oppression. Money. And here he goes, verse 10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity, he says. And here's the fallacy of wealth. We all want the next level of comfort. But we're never ever satisfied when we get there. Have you ever tried it? I'm sure you have. Am I right? Of course I'm right. I've tried it myself. You're never satisfied. And, and, and if I paid you, I don't know, $100,000 or more a year, you would increase your standard of living and you wouldn't have any more spending income, spending cash than you do now. All of a sudden, things would occur. The fact is, desire itself is insatiable. It's a lust. It's a lust of the eyes. It's a lust of the flesh. You can't satisfy lust. All you can do is feed it. It's a lust. You can only feed If you touch it, all you can do is feed it. You can't kill it. You can never satisfy it. All you can do is feed it. As one commentator said, the love of money increases in proportion as money itself increases. Is that true? The love of money increases in proportion as money itself increases. You can never satisfy lust. And there are side effects, verse 11. When goods increase, he says, they are increased to eat them. Don't forget the beneficiaries. When goods increase, they are increased to eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The more you get, the more your circle of dependence grows. The more your standard of living increases. The more your taxation increases. You're putting your money into a bag with holes before you know what you're doing, aren't you? So that very soon... The, the, the greatest satisfaction you receive out of your enormous paycheck is watching the paycheck come in. You don't have any more spending money. You're proud because you earn so much. You can't do any more with it than your next door neighbour who's on half the wage because your circumstances have changed to absorb your profitability. You know how scripture describes that? Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5. Labour not to be rich... Cease not from thine own wisdom. Cease, cease, sorry, from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings; they fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Proverbs twenty-three verses four and five, and it is true. And furthermore, he says in verse twelve, the sleep of a labouring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. You're never satisfied, verse 10. You've attracted a multitude of dependents, verse 11, and now you can't sleep because of stress, verse 12. And the labouring man, he survives. He doesn't die young. He's happy. He sleeps well. He wakes up contented and refreshed because he's got something money can't buy, isn't he? 
He's got contentment. And you can't buy it with money. It's a very fickle commodity, isn't it, as well? Here we are. Verse 13. It's a very fickle commodity. It pretends to be so powerful, but it's notoriously unreliable. And Solomon tells us a story now between verses 13 and 17. He tells the story of a man. A man beset by wealth. Verse 13, he calls it a sore evil, this story. The word sore means wicked or sick. It's a wicked and sick evil. A sore evil, he goes again in verse 16. It hurts the owner at the end of verse 13. He's got a sickness because of it at the end of verse 17. So here he is, this man. Endures extreme hardship. He works night and day to stack up money so that he might, he might proffer a dynasty after him. He invests. He goes without. He deprives himself. Look at verse 17. Look what he's like. Verse 17. All his days, he says, also, he eateth in darkness. And he hath much sorrow and wrath in his sickness. He's mean. Oh, he's mean. He won't even turn the light on to see what he's eating. And it's an illness to him. He's obsessed. He is sick. Because he's so filthy rich. Until verse 14, something goes wrong. And the fortune collapses. Maybe the stock market. Maybe a bad business decision. Maybe a superannuation scandal. Something happens and all of a sudden, all of a sudden the son that was going to be the heir of the dynasty and continue the name, grows up in poverty. Overnight, everything's changed. And then the old man dies in verse 15. And you might say, well, serves him right. He died a failure. But it's irrelevant, isn't it? Because verse 15 says, as he came forth from his mother's womb naked, naked he shall return and go as he came. He's going to take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. Job 1, verse 21. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. Job 1, 21. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. And that's the point, you see. That's the point when you get to verse 18. The blessings come from God, and so does the power to use them come from God. Look, verse 18. Behold, and here's our conclusion again. You see, he keeps coming back to this conclusion but he changes it a bit each time. Behold, that which I've seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun, all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. And Solomon comes back to this conclusion again and again. But now he adds another dimension, verse 19. Every man also to whom God has given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof. Put a line around that. And has given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. There are two gifts of God. The first gift is the portion that you get your enjoyment from doing the activity. The second is the power to enjoy it, the opportunity to partake of the gift. You need two gifts of God, and there's the qualification, you see. It's one thing to have the blessing, in this case the blessing of wealth. It's another thing to have the power to enjoy it. That's an added blessing of God, by no means guaranteed. 
And so in verse 20 he says, For he shall not much remember the days of his life, that this is the man, of course, who's been given the power to eat. He won't much remember the days of his life because God answered him in the joy of his heart. NIV. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. He's got the blessing and the ability to enjoy the blessing he doesn't even think about yesterday. This is the man who sees the blessings of life for what they are. God expects us to keep life in perspective, you see. The man who can truly enjoy life is the man who can look beyond it. That's the antidote, really, to to miscontent. What do we care if someone has more than us? What do you care if somebody has more than you, except if you're living life as an end in itself? Well, then you care. But but if if this life, for us, is not an end in itself, what do you care if now someone has more more than you? Let's just be thankful for what we've got and enjoy the blessings God gives us and just ask for our allowance and be content with that. But suppose God doesn't give man the power to enjoy his blessings. What does a man do then? If a man actually is powerless to enjoy the simple things of life that God gives him. And Solomon gives us two snapshots here. Verses 1 and 2. A man who has riches, wealth, honour, everything he could possibly want. But he dies young, without an heir. And his fortune goes to someone else he doesn't even know. Perhaps there's a war. Perhaps he's in a car accident. All of a sudden, he's gone, you see. But you can imagine that man previously thinking about his future, setting himself up, thinking about the time when all this hard work will pay off, retirement's just a few years away, never happens. Never happened. A life wasted, he says. He had the blessings, never ever, never, ever used them, was not given the power to use them by God. Verses 3 to 6, the story of another man. He's just as rich as the first man, but this time he lives for years and years. He's got a hundred children, but it, and it says in verse 3, he has no burial. No matter what he does, he can't die. He, can't, he just keeps staying alive on and on and on. In fact, in verse 6 it says, Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, he's lived twice as long as the oldest man that ever lived. But he doesn't have health. He's a sick man. Verse 3, the end of verse 3, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. He's going to live for 2,000 years. He's going to have a 100 children, but he's got ill health. His life is a life of misery for 2,000 years. All he wants to do is die, but he can't die. Better for him than if he had never been born, Solomon says. At least then he'd be free from the burden of living. Look, that sentiment is a biblical sentiment. There was a man who had a lot of money and who just wanted to die. Job, chapter 3. Why didn't I die from the womb? Why did I not give up the spirit when I came out of the belly? For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then I've been at rest with kings and counsellors of the earth which built desolate places for themselves or with princes that had gold who filled their houses with silver or as in hidden, untimely birth, I had not been as infants which never saw light. Oh, he says, there the wicked cease from troubling. 
There the weary be at rest. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery? Why do I have to wake up the next day, says Job? And you can see the pro- it's exactly the same problem as this man here in verses 3 to 6. And life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures, which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. You see, this is all this man wanted, but he could not die. It was better, therefore, Solomon says, that he was never born than that he endures that. This is the value of the blessings of God and the ability to enjoy them. This man here, 2,000 years old, 100 children, rich as you can imagine, would have given anything for a simple, healthy life, wouldn't he? But sadly, it's something that every man has to learn for himself. And most men never ever learn it. Verse 7. All the labour of man is for his mouth, yet the appetite's not filled. All the labour of man, he says, is for his mouth, but the appetite is not filled. This is somewhat, I suppose, of a reiteration of chapter 5 and verse 10, where he's never ever satisfied with silver. But this time Solomon goes further, because look, the appetite is not filled. Look at your margin. Appetite. The margin says soul. It means something more than just the stomach, doesn't it? You know how, man, you know how Moses would have said this verse? You know what Moses would have said against that verse? Man doesn't live by bread alone. Wouldn't he? Man doesn't live by bread alone, you see. He needs more than physical nourishment. He's got an appetite that needs more than just temporal sustenance. So what does he do? He turns to money. He turns to money. Verse 8. For what is the wise more than the fool? What has the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Wisdom won't help you, he says. Even the poor man who adjusts his desires to his means is no better off. He is just as unsatisfied as the rich man who can never satiate his desire. Though, as verse 9 says, making the best of what you have is obviously better than desiring something you never achieve. Yet wisdom doesn't bring satisfaction any more than folly. And now Solomon concludes in verse 10, the last three verses. This is how life This is how creation is. It is what it is. And man is what he is. Verse 10. That which hath been is named already. And it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is God that is mightier than he. Whatever exists has already been named. And what man is has been known already. Neither can man contend with God who is stronger than him. Why does he say that, brothers and sisters? Well, because of verse 11. Look at this. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? And you've got to make a translation. The word things should be the word words. Words. There be many words that increase vanity. What is man the better? You see the point? Man complains. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like restrictions. He doesn't like being told what to do. He doesn't like having limitations placed upon him in this life. Nothing turns out the way it's meant to. But he's in no position to argue about it because who can contend with one that's mightier than him? 
And all the words that are said about this life, about the problems of this life, it is vanity, he says, because man refuses to, to seek the obvious solution. He refuses to fulfill his appetite in the obvious way. And therefore, verse 12, Who knoweth what is good for man in this life, all the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Does man want to know the solution? Does man want to know what's after him under the sun? Does man want to know what is the, the good for a man in this life, as it says? No, he doesn't. The answer's obvious, but he never ever finds it, does he? And he dies unsatisfied. And it's interesting, you know, because this is the very same way that Solomon concluded chapter 3. In chapter 3 and verse 21, he said, Who knoweth the spirit of man that exalts itself? The quest for eternity. Uh, the satisfaction of appetite. Three chapters later, we still haven't found out what's good for man. We're no closer three chapters later to answering that question than we were back in chapter 3. In Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 22, he says, Who shall bring man to see what shall be after him? Exactly what he says in the last couple of lines of this verse here. Who can tell a man what shall be after him? You think of the issue, brothers and sisters, young people. The more a man gets, the more he wants. Desire can never be satisfied. It's a lust, isn't it? The more he gets, the more his burdens increase. Dependence, sleeplessness. What's more, there's no guarantee he'll ever be able to keep his wealth, either for himself or for his heir. He might die an early death. He might die an early death. Or he might live a long, long time without any enjoyment. In any case... His labours are in vain because he can never ever satisfy his appetite. He never ever achieves fulfilment no matter how much money he stacks up. And then he dies. Having existed, as he says here, only for a moment, only like a shadow, without the real answer he was looking for all along. You see, Solomon isn't finding answers here. He's just started to close doors. None of these things are solutions. One after the other. Four chapters now, he's just started to close off all these avenues of investigation they're not the solution. So what is the answer? What is the good of man in this life? Well, it's in the New Testament. And look, if there was ever a commentary on Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, it's got to be here in 1 Timothy 6. Look at that. Look at that. Here's verse 26. Well, I've missed a few verses out here, but from verses 6 to 19, and here's Ecclesiastes referred to in those verses. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What profit does a man have? Ecclesiastes 5 verse 16 says, well there's the profit. It's great gain to have godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. We've just read it in chapter 5 and verse 15, haven't we? Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. It is good and comely, verse 18 of chapter 5 says, to eat and drink and to enjoy, to enjoy your portion. They which will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts. And he was hurting that man in chapter 5 and verse 13, wasn't he? As you read, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's where we begin in chapter 5 and verse 10. He loved silver, it said. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, 
nor trust in uncertain riches. There it is. They evaporated in chapter 5 and verse 14, those riches. But in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Chapter 5 and verse 19, God gives him the power to eat thereof. That they do good. That they be rich in good works. Verse 18 of chapter 5, it is good to enjoy the good of his labour. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Who can tell a man what should be after him under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. And this is the time to come, brothers and sisters, isn't it? That is the time to come, of course. The time of eternal life for all those who have the appetite for spiritual faith.